I remember the spring of 08 when I announced that I would be taking this position at Ford. Uh, a lot of colleagues came out of the woodwork to say, what are you, crazy? Why, why would you go to work for a loser like that? Go, go to work for a winner like Toyota, right? Well, my thinking was, look, I want to be part of a success story. I want to be part of a turnaround. I want to be part of something that allows me to contribute in some meaningful way. You are listening to Louder Than Words, the podcast inspiring creatives of all types by giving you a glimpse into the lives and creative process of the most remarkable people you know. I'm John Benini, and I'm your host. Welcome, everyone, to Loud in the Words. My name is John Benini, uh, but we're going to just jump right into things today. We have a really exciting guest. Um, most of you who would be listening to this show probably already know him or know of his work or have read about him, um, as I have. Uh, but today we welcome Scott Monty to Louder Than Words. Scott, uh, from 2008 to 2014, was Global Digital and Multimedia Communications Manager at Ford Motor Company, where he led efforts across social media from influencer relations to marketing to support to customer service, um, all of that great stuff. Scott was also ranked number one uh, atop the 24 social business leaders by the econ- ec- Economist. Wow, can't even can't even say that word. And by Forbes as one of the top 10 influencers in social media. And Alan Mulally, the CEO of Ford Motor Company, once called Scott a visionary. So Scott, honored to have you here. Welcome to Louder Than Words. How are things? It is my great pleasure, John. Things are great. You know, the summertime is here and business is booming, so couldn't be happier. And you're so... Right off the bat, we have something in common. We're both from Connecticut. I mean, I'm still here, but uh, you're you're from Suffield, way up north. Yeah, and uh, yeah, you 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 frequented or you uh, liked a burger place uh, not too far from where I grew up, Ted's Steamed Cheeseburgers. So, how did you make your way down to Meriden to know about Ted's from Suffield? Well, you know, my dad uh, for many many years, uh, virtually his entire career, was a truck driver. And he worked for a company in Meriden called APA, uh, which was headquartered uh, in Meriden. He would drive down there every day, and occasionally we would go down and meet him. And uh, and Ted's was, you know, kind of legendary uh, around there for its steamed cheeseburger. And you know, I probably hit there the first time. I don't know, mid-teens or so in my mid-teens. So uh, you know, it was just something brand new. What what was interesting though, as kind of a a coda to this is I was working years later in Boston uh, for a guy who was a lawyer, and and he had practiced in uh, New York and Boston and lots of places. And we were calling on a client in Connecticut. He goes, "Oh, there's this great place called Ted's. We have to go there for uh, for steamed cheeseburgers." I'm like, "What? How do you know Ted's?" Right. So I was happy to go back there in my adult life. Yeah, that's crazy that it has that sort of reputation. Uh, yeah. But um, yeah, so you kind of just alluded. You made your way up to Boston, um, you know, uh, earlier in your career. What brought you up there? Well, I went to school in Boston. Went to Boston University, uh, where, as an undergraduate, uh, I pursued a pre-med line of uh, of schooling. But I didn't major in any of the typical things that a pre-med person would major in. You know, typically, it's biology or chemistry or psychology even, you know, something related to the sciences. 
I reasoned that I would have enough science for the rest of my career, let alone the rest of college and medical school, that I wanted to do something that I wouldn't have a chance to do otherwise. And I decided to major in classics. And as soon as I took my first course in Greek civilization, I knew, wow, this is fun. This is, you know, learning about the ancients, learning about uh, art and architecture and literature and drama and, and just life as it evolved over, uh, you know, the, the major portion of recorded human history and, and eventually how it wrapped into the founding of our country and how a lot of the founding fathers based architecture and the Constitution and lots of things on uh, classical influences. So to me, it's been a, just a marvelous uh, set of lessons and a, an ongoing influence that has changed my thinking and frankly has changed the way I've thought with regard to marketing and communications. That's fascinating. Yeah, there, there's a lot to be learned there and probably not a better city uh, <laughs> to, to learn that and, and study that from. I've always, um, Boston just feels like one of those cities that you can just feel the history. Philadelphia has always been another one for me. Um, it's modern, yet it it just it oozes that history and you, and you can feel it. Uh, it uh, it's almost tangible. So I've always loved that about Boston. So yeah. so studying that in a city like Boston must have been must have been like bonus points. Oh, it's tremendous. You know, I, I had the opportunity to go to BU or Tufts, and Tufts, of course, is out in Medford, which isn't quite the, a leafy suburb, but it's removed enough from the city that it feels distinct. And when I took a tour of Boston University, we were walking through the city. We were walking on the streets of the Back Bay and Kenmore Square. You know, Fenway Park is a stone's throw away. And I knew, you know, as a kid from a small town in Connecticut, I needed to join <laughs> the, the quote-unquote real world at some point. <laughs> and I thought, well, why not now? Why, why not while I'm in, still in this learning mode? And in a city that is synonymous with higher education, um, it just became a tremendous uh, opportunity for sets of opportunities for me. And it's still a small enough city that you can get around on foot and you can see a lot of those historic things. And I, obviously, being a classics major, I liked history. So it was a wonderful combination. I bet. I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, and, and we're going to get into, um, you know, sort of, you know, what brought you out to Michigan and, and Ford and, and all that. But I always like to ask, uh, you know, people who have sort of, you know, masters at the craft, right? Like if you were dropped into a company right now, um, you know, heading up communications and social and that sort of thing, you know, what would be what would be your first priorities? You know, because it seems like there's so many there's so many mouths to feed now, right? With, with all the channels available, there's so many best practices written and there's seemingly endless approaches. So, you know, there's a lot of people that, you know, listen into this show that, uh, you know, head communities and, and social and things like that, uh, that I'm sure would take a lot from that. So dropping into a company right now, what would be your first priorities? Well, I think my first priority would be to go on a, on a listening tour. You really understand where the challenges are, uh, where where the gaps are, where people feel like they're being heard, where they feel like they're not being heard. What audiences are we currently serving well? What what audiences are we ignoring entirely? Right? And then look at what the business is trying to achieve, and from there, crafting a you know a very 
simplified message or set of messages that can be molded and formed and um, you know made apparent for each one of those audiences without necessarily saying the exact same thing to every one of them um, and and then starting to go on and you know figure out what the what the channels are and what the the modes of communication are um, but it, it's really about beginning with understanding in mind about the willingness to understand others and then to seek to be understood and how do companies how do companies go about doing that right because um it's it's a lot of qualitative research right hearing hearing what the customer is saying hearing what the buyer is saying what the market you know um needs wants um it's quantitative for sure but um you know what have you found to be most successful in uh, you know, s- starting at that point, you know, figuring out the messaging, uh, uh, hearing, you know, hearing what the audience is like. How do you go about actually executing on that? Well, I think uh, a couple of things. One, I think it's important to divide your audience into three sections, or your audiences into three sections. Um, those that are absolutely your fan and think that you're doing everything right. Uh, those that absolutely detest you and don't want to have anything to do with you. And then those that are completely apathetic, which is really the, the biggest uh, audience <laughs> out there. When you, when you think, and that's, that's the most problematic audience. But if you can understand from the negatives why they're not moving along, then that, that can help you start to address those issues. Uh, whether it's a service issue, whether it's a product issue, whether it's a communications issue, what have you. Um, those that are in your court, the positives, uh, you know, I'm, I'm less inclined to listen too closely to those people because they're already satisfied, quite frankly. And, and I think you, you don't want to drink too much of your own Kool-Aid, right? It's important to understand why, but still, don't, don't put too much weight on it. But then to find out from the people that or apathetic, you know, why? What's, what's holding them back? Are they not emotionally connected with you for some reason or another? Are they simply not in the market? In which case you need to understand the business cycles and the sales cycles. Um, and I, I think from there, having those three together will give you a sense as to what you need to do. And obviously, you know, the whole SWOT analysis comes with that too. Strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. Um, Particularly in this marketplace when you have to be concerned with who else is out there and swooping in that is unintended or unexpected in your marketplace. You know, disruption is an overly used term, but frankly, there are a lot of industries, a lot of companies that are being disrupted right now from uh, competitors that they never thought they would have. Uh, you know, the, the first one that comes to mind is Uber and the, the taxi audience, you know, and and or, or the taxi industry. And of course, taxis wanted to think that they always had a monopoly on the industry. No one else could do what they did. They had the medallions, etc. And recent history has shown that to be otherwise. Right. So this becomes part of the development of the messaging, the, the development of the positioning of the company. Because I've always been a, a firm believer that in an ongoing uh, relationship with customers, you need to be 
taking in twice as much as you're putting out there. You know the old phrase, you, we have two ears and one mouth, use them in that proportion. Everybody's grandmother said that. That's actually, <laughs> that's a quote from Socrates, uh, believe it or not. We have, but we have, we have two ears and two eyes and but one mouth, and we should use them in that proportion. That's a Socratic quote. And just shows, it goes to show you how universal human nature is over the course of time. We still can't get that down today, over 2,000, 3,000 years after Socrates first said it. So uh, to me, it's about taking things in and then doing something about them, not just changing your marketing or changing your messaging, but fundamentally changing your business if that's what re- is, is required. Yeah, I I like the uh, the Socrates quote. And I believe my grandmother probably did say something like that uh, at, at some point. Probably not as uh, probably not as nice. It was probably when I was you know not listening. So, um, but uh, something you said there that was that was fascinating too is you know apathy and how how challenging that is to to counter you know as a brand and you know not not to make gross assumptions you know about about Ford or the automotive industry in general. But two thousand eight was a pretty turbulent. Uh, you know, a pretty turbulent time, um, you know, for many manufacturers. Um, uh, and, um, and I remember, so I, I grew up, my father has, has worked, uh, just a bit of background has worked, had his own, uh, sort of, uh, automotive shop since the year I was born is when it opened, but he was always a big car guy before that American cars, uh, very, you know, one of those guys that, um, has always bought American cars and, um, you know, one thing he always used to say was that, you know, from, you know, Growing up in the '70s and, and having muscle cars and things like that, you know, into the '90s and the in the aughts, the early aughts, that cars became very homogenous, right? They weren't um, very distinctive from one another. Um, Ford was one of those brands around 2008 that all of a sudden they um, they the, the the models that they came out with, the the marketing campaigns, the everything sort of um, it seemed to from you know from a consumer standpoint like completely just they were reinvigorated and that sort of coincided you know at the at the, at the time that you sort of jumped on board as well so i guess like what were things like in, internally at the time at ford um you know what was the perception was there was that apathy was that a was that a, a real challenge um you know bigger when you arrived than when you left uh that you sort of you know uh found yourself trying to to work at uh, every single day like what d- just describe and talk about that time uh for a bit yeah well it was uh it was just a fascinating time to be part of the auto industry in general and i remember the spring of 08 when i announced that i would be taking this position at ford a lot of colleagues came out of the woodwork to say, what are you, crazy? Why, why would you go to work for a loser like that? Go, go to work for a winner like Toyota, right? Well, my thinking was, look, I want to be part of a success story. I want to be part of a turnaround. I want to be part of something that allows me to you know, contribute in some meaningful way. And maybe it'll work out. Maybe it won't. But I viewed looking at Ford and its plans in the early part of 2008 had the right executive team in place. It had the right business plan, had the right product plan. And it was only a matter of giving it some time. And I looked at the digital and social media industry and how it was fairly nascent. And I said, you know, I think by 2010, there's going to be a collision course where both of these things just kind of reach a height 
and together uh, it'll be unstoppable. So Ford, up until 2006, had car people as CEOs. As a matter of fact, uh, the chairman and CEO uh, for about five years up until that time was none other than Bill Ford, the great-grandson of Henry Ford. And he just reached a conclusion after wallowing around for a few years that he was not the right man for the job. And he and the executive committee decided to bring in some help. And they, they brought in Alan Mulally from Boeing, right, from outside of the auto industry. It was a big risk for uh, the very insular auto industry. And, and just by, by uh, way of comparison... Um, as you mentioned, the auto industry got complacent. Uh, it, it lost its way. It lost its knack for good design, right? Because it was myopic, because it didn't want to look outside of its lane. It didn't want to even look to not, not only the Japanese and German competitors. It didn't want to look outside to other industries, right? So bringing Malalian from an outside industry was a big, big deal. And he tells a story once where he, he got there and some executives, uh, and I, I don't remember whether they were uh, on the board or whether they were just a part of the executive team, were a little skeptical, shall we say, of his ability to pull it off. And they said, you know, Mr. Mullally, the auto industry, it's a very complex industry, you know. And he said, no, I, I know, I get that. He, he said, uh, but but... Let me see if I can get this straight. Um, you're you're in the transportation business. He said, look, I come from Boeing. I'm from the transportation business as well. And they said, yeah, but, you know, there's 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 lots of different uh, groups that you have to, to work around. There's, there's uh, regulatory and, and labor issues and manufacturing issues. And he goes, yeah, yeah, we, we, we had all those uh, when I was at Boeing. And they said, yeah, but, you know, ultimately, this is, a, this is a complex thing. You know, we're putting together products that have 30,000 moving parts. And he goes, yeah, well, at Boeing, we had a million moving parts, and we had to keep the vehicle six, six miles above the air, uh, ground <laughs> at all time, right? So he said, I think I'm going to be okay. And at that point, they were like, okay, this guy, he gets it. He gets us. And what he did when he, when he came in was – he united everyone around the world. Ford, until that time, had been uh, composed of a lot of fiefdoms. There was a lot of territoriality there. And there wasn't a lot of sharing of information. Uh, you know, people, even, even between departments, they were knowledge hoarders rather than knowledge sharers. And Alan said, look, if we're going to do this, we've got to do it right. And everybody has to be on the same page. And he came up with the one Ford plan. Uh, which everybody carried it around as part of their, uh, you know, like a little wallet card or their, their ID. And it was one team, one plan, one goal. Uh, and it, it was very simply stated. And the goal was an exciting and viable Ford delivering profitable growth for all. Well, who, who can't get behind that, right? It was a kind of a unifying message that everybody understood. So when Alan got there in 2006, the company went to – uh, its banks, its bankers, and asked for a $23 billion loan so that it could put its plan into place under Allen. 
and the banks granted it. And two years later, the bottom dropped out of the entire financial market and out of the auto industry. And when Chrysler and GM went to Congress to uh, ask for bailout money, Ford could stand tall and say, no, we're good. Well, we, we, we've got our own money. Now, a couple of things happened there. One, first of all, until that time, Ford was inextricably bound up with Chrysler and GM. It was the Detroit Three or the Big Three, and they were an entity moving in lockstep. And when one of them made a stupid decision, the pall was cast on all of them. Well, going into the bailout hearings, Ford was actually there, which didn't help our case at all. <laughs> but when the, the money was granted and we said, no thanks, that was an opportunity to begin to differentiate ourselves from the competition. And every time an editor or a journalist referred to the big three, we were on the phone or we were online saying, mm -mm, it's the big two and Ford. And we did that relentlessly for six months, right? So coming out of that into the early part and the mid part of 2009, this is when some of those really unique and exciting products started coming out. When people like you started noticing how Ford was doing things differently, doing its marketing differently, doing its product design and development differently. And it really all began to take hold. Yeah, for sure. And how did, how did social media play into this? I don't want to say new image, you know, but like, how, how did, like, how did, how was your role informed by all of this? Right? Like, um, did, did you, you know, was your approach dictated at sort of, you know, cultivating this new image of Ford? Like, how, how did that all play in together? Well, the, the mission of the communications team was to improve Ford's reputation and to help build purchase consideration. Right? Now, Ford, you know, had been, as I said, had been thrown in with the other two automakers for a long time. And reputation takes a long time to repair. And the, the U.S. auto industry had a black eye because of the years of untrustworthy activity with regard to consumers. They didn't give them the cars they wanted. They created gas guzzlers. They, they created questionably uh, reliable products, etc. cetera. Uh, so it takes a lot of time to repair that. And personally, because I didn't have any other tools at my disposal in those early days, I had my own social media accounts. And I was connected with a fair number of people and with some fairly influential people. And I just began to tell Ford's story. I began to give people an eyewitness account of what was going on, both with a sense of wonderment and with a sense of intelligence and authority, being someone on the inside. So I could speak with great authority about Ford's progress, about Ford's plans. The key to, to doing much of this today as well as then, was to give people proof, was to show people what you're doing, not just tell people what you're doing. You know, it's one thing to say, oh, we've got a plan, we've got great products. Well, how do we know, right? 
You're a shill. Of course you're going to say that. Well, I didn't just stand on the, the basis of my word. I sent cars to people to try them out. We invited, in a, in a huge marketing initiative in early 2009, we invited 100 influencers to take part in this program that we called the Fiesta Movement. And we brought a hundred of these vehicles over from Europe where they were already in the market a year before anyone in the United States had an opportunity to drive them. And we gave each one of these influencers a Fiesta for six months to do whatever they wanted with it. They could drive around the country and we picked them selectively around the, the, the entire uh, lower 48. Uh, they All they had to do for us was create one video a month. We would give them a theme, and all they had to do was create a video. In the meantime, they're out there tweeting and posting videos on YouTube and updating Facebook and seeing people in real life. And the exposure that we got was greater than if we had invested in doing a Super Bowl ad. And we ended up having 130,000 people register on a site to say, yeah, I've, I've heard about this vehicle. Tell me more when it comes to the market. And that is, that, that's a good 10 times more than we would usually get on any normal car launch for, you know, kind of early hand raisers. I remember that. That was massive, the Fiesta move. I, 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 I remember the buzz around that. Exactly. And, and the reason it worked well is because we didn't tell them what to say. And we aggregated all of their content on one of our hosted sites. And completely unfiltered, which it was a huge risk when you think about it. You know, these people could say or do anything. And, and the, the, a lot of people said, what are you, nuts? What are they going to say about your product? And we said, well, we hope they say exactly what they're thinking. Well, what if something's wrong with it? Well, we're confident enough in our product that we don't think that's going to happen. But guess what? If it does, we're going to use it as a feedback mechanism to the product team, to the design engineers to actually get something fixed. So whether or not anything went, quote, unquote, wrong, we were protected. And it showed Ford's willingness to, to put itself out there, that it was confident in its products, and that it, that it showed that it understood the mindset of today's consumer, which I think was equally as important. Sounds like there was some reciprocity at play there, too. Um, I mean, that's, I'm sure you had you know, some people that were part of the movement that, that – um, you know, maybe had uh, some unsatisfactory things to say, but I guess when you're when you're that open and you're that giving to uh, your users, customers, fans, whatever, I, I think um, it seems like there, there there could be a lot more flexibility in their sort of I don't know I don't know what the word is review uh, or or uh, just view of the product in general. Um, but uh, I, I, I'm sure there was probably some of that at play. But uh, I, I'm sure there was also maybe some unsatisfactory things that were said too, right? I mean, you can't have uh, that big of a campaign and that high volume without, without seeing a few. But like you said, if it informs the product, isn't that a good thing? It was actually – we had about a 99% satisfaction rate <laughs> overall. Um, and there were a couple of minor things. We took them back to the, uh, the engineers and they ended up uh, – you know, there was something with um, – the seat lever, I think, the way the seat advanced or moved or whatever, uh, or, or a, a, an armrest, right? Because it's different in Europe than it is in the U.S. They took that into account, and in the second wave of product rollout, they actually uh, implemented it. So, 
You know, when you, especially that, that's the other thing. When you can show people that you've heard them, not only by acknowledging what they've said, but show them how you've actually put into practice what they've recommended. It, you're not going to take, you know, everything everyone says uh, at, at, at gospel truth and, and as a, a change in your business direction. You can go nuts that way. But when you can show people that you have heard them and you've taken action, uh, there's, there's a, a huge affinity there and a sense of loyalty where people will go out of their way to defend you simply because you've created an ally in them. That's yeah, that's that's fascinating. That really is. And it, it, it does seem like that maybe around that time was, um, you know, a, a sort of sea change maybe in, in, in the perception uh, of Ford is, is when things like that started taking place. So that was, that's, that's fascinating to hear, you know, sort of the inside, you know, story behind it. Um, and about like, you know, you, you were mentioning purchase consideration, you know, for, for B2C companies, you know, obviously ones that don't, uh, that aren't e-commerce, um, the ROI of social media and tying things back, it, it, it could get a little muddy, right? Um, so how did, you know, how did, how does a company like Ford, uh, basically, how do you know that it's working, right? Like, how, how did you know that the, you know, maybe some of the, uh, the initiatives that were, that were executed through social, um, uh, were changing the perception or were increasing purchase considerate, uh, consideration, um, because maybe some of the folks that came in and, and bought a fusion or, or, or bought an edge or whatever it was, maybe they didn't mention, uh, you know, where they had originated from. So like, how, how does that sort of thing work? Um, that sort of attribution work at a, at a, at a company the size of Ford? Yeah. Well, particularly in the auto industry too, where people get on average 19 sources of information before they go and decide to buy a car. Oh, for sure. I, I think that's increased beyond that. I, I haven't seen any recent statistics to bear that out, but I just, you get a sense that, you know, we, we live in such an information rich society now. Uh, people can get information from wherever. When, when they set themselves down to do it, though, when they, when they go to, you know, whatever third party sites or the manufacturer site or social media, wherever they go, uh, there, there are upwards of 19, 20 different sources of information. So I think the first thing to us was to remove from our minds the uh, knee-jerk reaction to want to attribute everything to social. You know, the, the whole last-click attribution model, I think, is, uh, has been popular for many years. However, there is no such thing as a last-click attribution with regard to a large purchase like a car. Right? There's lots of things that are informing it. But what we did when we had the opportunity to do so is we would go exclusive on social with content when appropriate. So we knew that if someone mentioned something, that it could only have come from social. Or conversely, with the Fiesta movement, that was a year before the car launched. We did six months exclusively of only social content. Right, so everything that happened until that point, we could absolutely one hundred percent tie back to social, right? However, stepping a little further back, I think we came to the realization early on, and and this is my personal philosophy as well, that if it's done well. Social is more akin to 
PR, and communications than it is to marketing and sales. There's more branding. There's more general awareness that is driven by social than there is lead generation and ultimately sales, particularly with complex sales like cars. Yeah, for sure. And, 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 um, and that only, uh, that only sort of that, that power, you know, that, that sort of PR lever, um, has only increased as, you know, the number of channels and, and mediums can, you know, continues to grow. Um, you know, even in the years since, you know, you left Ford, um, Instagram has launched ads for businesses. Snapchat has, uh, I don't, you know, on, on a business level, um, it, it still it remains to be seen, but it's become this massive pop culture um, movement um, that everybody says you need to be on, but nobody really has the big success story yet. Um, right. But like, how, how do you view all those things? Like if you were still at Ford, right? Like when, when things like that would happen, when changes to the technology or, or, or the big new popular sexy app or platform would launch, how, how do you view those things within the lens of, you know, a company like Ford or, or even, you know, some of the companies that maybe you consult with or, or advise now? Um, what, is, what does all that mean for, for the social landscape? Well, you know, I think it, it depends on your overall strategy. You know, for a company like Ford and its ilk that are trying to improve their reputation, and particularly when I was at Ford, it was about helping people understand Ford's commitment to technology and how technology has always been a part of the car, but how the connected car coming along uh, has been even more important and how Ford played a significant role in that early on. So for us to be doing... Uh, unique and um, different things on social channels and to be the first to do things on social channels, it showed Ford's willingness to be innovative, right? It was a theme. It was a sense of the brand that was consistent with where Ford was going uh, at the corporate and product level, right? So that, that made complete sense. Um, and if I were still there today, with regard to you know the up and coming things like you know Pokemon or Snapchat, I would say, well, of course we have to experiment. We have to get on there and do stuff. And I, I'm not one to chase the latest shiny object. I actually despise that thing where you know every month the the, the social media guru of the month has a flavor of the month, and like oh you got to get on live video, you got to get on Snapchat, you got to look. I'm about experimenting. And trying new things. And frankly, what I mentioned before about being able to definitively attribute some kind of action, well, that's a great place to try it out, right? But ultimately, particularly if you're a big brand, you need to focus most of your energy where most of your audience is. And it may sound cliched and it may sound tired and it may not sound very innovative, but guess what? Facebook is a powerhouse. Email still works. It's, it works even better than Facebook in, in terms of uh, you know, some of the, the rates that you're getting and the responses that you're getting. So to me, you know, don't be blinded by the latest shiny object, but realize that you have to keep experimenting and you have to keep current to make sure you're where your audience needs, needs you to be. As as somebody who you know uh, has has been entrenched in you know in the social landscape for so long, do you have to 
you know, do you have to download all of the latest stuff? Do you have to make sure you're on top of all these things? Because, you know, you have a lot of people that um, might just sort of dismiss something like Snapchat. It's just, you know, it's just for, it's just for the high school kids. You know, that's, that's what the reputation was, you know, even, even 12 months ago. Um, but in a position such as yours, um, you know, when you were at Ford and, and, and even maybe now when, like I said, when you're advising clients, do you have to stay on top of all these things? Or, or how, do you, how do you go about sort of evaluating like <laughs> maybe the things that are worth your time as far as like new technologies and apps are concerned? Yeah. Well, I, I think any professional needs to be constantly learning. You know, if, if you think you're done with your professional education and your, your professional development, and I'm not talking about a, you know a structured set of courses that your company may put on, uh, or even things that you may get through professional organizations like uh, you know the American Marketing Association or uh, PRSA. Uh, I'm talking about natural curiosity. You know, I, I think the good leader is always very curious. We have a a two and a half year old, so I, that phrase is in in the forefront of my mind. George was a good little monkey and always very curious. Um, the point is, you need to be constantly experimenting, and it doesn't mean that you personally need to, uh, you know, adopt and have a presence on all of these places. But you at least need to understand how they work. And for me, I, I definitely see the power. And Snapchat, I see it more for individuals than I do for businesses at this point, except for uh, the publishing industry, people that, uh, that deal in news and information, for example, to have a news-rich story or set of stories to tell. But I think you can be incredibly creative. One of your recent guests, Jay Akunzo, just the other night, he gave a, a master class on how to do a keynote, how to, how to prepare for multiple keynotes. And, and how you stay sane as a, as a speaker when you've got, you know, a number of different speeches to give. And he did it all on Snapchat. I thought it was amazing. One of the, the most creative uses of the platform I've ever seen. Okay? But guess what? I don't use Snapchat every day. I find that it, it takes up too much time for me. It requires a commitment. And it requires a commitment that, is, frankly, I don't have right now. You know, I'm spending my time elsewhere. But again, it doesn't mean that I dismiss Snapchat or say that it's not important. You just have to understand how it fits into the scheme of things. Yeah, Jay's one of those guys who seems to have figured it out, and it's because he he puts in the reps. I mean, he you have to. Uh, he's you know the 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 proverbial ten thousand hours. Like he he's been um, you know uh, putting out content on on, on Snapchat for for months, lots of content. So I think he's just one of those guys that has seemed to find his voice and the right approach. And, uh, there's, there's, there's a handful of people out there like that. And, uh, he, he's certainly one of them. Um, so as I mentioned before, in, in 2014, you, you, you decided to, you know, to, to leave Ford. Um, what have you been up to? What have you been up to since? So for, uh, for about a year, I joined a, uh, communications agency, uh, had offices in Boston, New York, and San Francisco. It's called Shift Communications as their EVP of strategy. And a lot of my work was internal. It, it was uh, helping the other leaders, the other VPs at the companies, uh, get up to speed with digital, uh, to serve as an advisor uh, to some of their clients, and to help with, uh, with, with landing new business. 
And I realized after a while that I was doing that, I said, you know, I could be doing this on my own. And, and I had thought about doing the entrepreneurial thing for a while, but to me, it was, it was terrifying to be able to make the jump from Ford, 166,000 people strong, to solopreneur. <laughs> it's about as big as a gap as you can get, right? So, uh, so I kind of did this in stepwise fashion, and after I, I felt like I was comfortable, uh, I, I jumped ship from uh, Shift and opened my own shop. And uh, I'm spending half of my time doing public speaking, the other half doing consulting with clients. And it's been probably the best move I've ever made. Where can people um, learn more about you and 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 the uh, you know the, the the business that you're you know you're you're doing with others? Sure, uh, you can check me out at scottmonty.com. That's my main blog and uh, speaking info and information about my clients and my consulting business. And then if you want to actually get some of my content beyond just my blog, I do a newsletter and a uh, a podcast, a weekly newsletter and podcast uh, called the Full Monty. Uh, and you can find that at fullmontyshow.com. And it's a brilliant newsletter. And and as somebody who, um, you know, ad- admires uh, a great newsletter, you know, being from a from an email software company, um, uh, you know, definitely one that I recommend to so many people. Like, where did where did the idea to to curate your own newsletter come from, and and how did it grow into what it's become? Because it's. Uh, it's it's massively successful. Um, you know, a lot of people in the, in the tech space talk about it. So, how did that all come together? I appreciate that. Um, it actually started as a project within Ford. You know, as I was leading a global team, and I had people in various departments and in various countries all over the world who I was bringing together to make sure that we were being consistent in our social efforts, um, and and that we could help each other. Because there were mobile developments in China that far outstripped what we were doing in the U.S. And there were, um, you know, colleagues in Europe that maybe needed a, a leg up on some stuff. This was our chance to come together and collaborate and, and to be part of that One Ford initiative that, uh, that Alan had uh, initiated. Um, so to me, I just I wanted people to know about developments in the industry that might affect how they do their jobs. Maybe it was an update on um, you know, some, some advertising rules that Facebook had. Uh, maybe it was about um, oh, advertising statistics in Mexico, for example, the latest numbers, whatever it was. So I assembled it in, in a little newsletter, and then I got snippets from everybody from around the world and around the company of what they were doing that they wanted other people to know about and put it together in this weekly newsletter. Well, as I looked at the topper, as I looked at that part that was, uh, you know, just industry general content, I thought, well, I could be publishing that part for the public and providing a service to other people. And who knows, maybe I would even be able to get more interesting source material from people that I'm connected with, right? So I started putting it out there. And eventually, it just took on this life of its own. And, and I heard from executives within Ford, even the CEO uh, that, that replaced Alan Mulally, um, how they, they read it every week. And they got a lot of value out of it because it provided a service to people. It, it brought together a lot of disparate information in one area and provided a pretty um, specific point of view around it, too. And 
if you're listening, subscribe to this newsletter. I know, you know, the edict has become like, you know, do we really need another email? No, you don't. But this isn't another email. Um, (laughs) Subscribe to the full Monty. It's, it's, it's a great wrap um, of, of, of basically everything. You know, if you're an entrepreneur, if you're in business, if you're in tech, if you're in social, whatever it is, it's just a, a great way to, it's like the skim for, uh, you know, for, for, for entrepreneurs or, or guys in communications and marketing. So, so definitely have a look. Um, highly recommended. Um, where, where else can people connect with you? Twitter? Like, where, where, where are you most active? Um, it's probably between Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn at this point. Uh, I, I do Instagram too, but I'm not there as frequently. Um, you know, Twitter is, it's funny. Twitter for me has died down a bit from where it was. And I think part of that is just the volume of stuff that's coming through. And, you know, I wrote about this in, uh, in, in uh, this week's newsletter that Twitter needs to define itself. And, and they're attempting to do that right now. But when you look at what happened with, with Yahoo and the sad, slow demise of Yahoo, ultimately resulting in this Verizon acquisition, it's that Yahoo could never effectively define itself. And when you can't define yourself, uh, other people either can't define you or they, they define you in their own way, and you end up not being as essential a destination for people. You know, Facebook, very clear, we're about connecting the world, making the world a more open and connected place. Boom. Well, What's Twitter? I mean, it's some of that, but you know, to me, it, it was always about engaging with other people, exchanging ideas, having conversations. And ironically, as more people have joined it, that's become more difficult. Yeah, for sure. They they have a uh, they have their work cut out, and um, it'll be interesting to see you know what moves they do next. Um, but uh, but yeah, follow follow Scott on on Twitter. Uh, I follow him there as well, and, and yeah, definitely pretty active. Um, so uh, I, I believe it's at Scott Monty. You got it. There it is. Um, Scott, this was a lot of fun, man. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your stories. I, this was fascinating. It, it, it was like story time for me hearing about the inner workings of Ford, um, especially as a Ford owner myself. But uh, but thank you so much for coming on and sharing your stories. This was fascinating. I appreciate it, John. Glad to speak with you, and uh, we'll see you around. And thank you, everyone else, for listening. Be sure to tune in next time. Uh, We'll have more great guests. So long, everyone.